This is the Be On Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we're exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And we're going to stay in Acts here for several weeks as we are exploring Paul. Uh, Ben, he's leaving his third missionary journey, just left Ephesus. And he's now headed to Jerusalem where things are going to go south for him. So we're taking a look at, at this journey. Do you think that that Paul knew that his missionary journeys, at least as we know them, it's believed he might have been later in, in prison in Rome and released and done some more stuff for a while. But didn't he have a sense like he's, it's coming to the end, you think, at this point in time, because he'd take one journey, then another, then another, and things, you know, he had... He was stoned and beaten and imprisoned and all these things along the way. But this trip is going to end in his deportation to Rome and to be stand, to stand in a trial. What do you think is like stirring around at this point? Any speculation? Yeah, when in considering uh, your question there, I think about Paul's words to the Ephesian elders as he's headed to Jerusalem. Um, in Acts 20, and uh, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And so, when I look at Paul's life, when I look at his missionary journeys, he was you know, for lack of a better way of phrasing this, he was just content to follow the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily knowing uh, where he might meet his end, but simply wanting to make much of Christ with his life. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that he's just not clear on. He's just going to be faithfully present and uh, faithfully giving himself to whatever the Lord has in store for him. Yeah, it seems to be the case that he he's aware that it's going to be tough no matter what, but it, the end of his life is not going to be glorious, except for the way it brings glory to God. So anyway, he's 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 left Ephesus and he's on this ship, and we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter twenty one, verse seven. And Luke is writing the book of Acts. So Luke uses the first-person plural of we when he's writing. And he says, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais. I think maybe is how you pronounce that, Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. Caesarea was this important city. It was the it was the functional capital of Judea at the time. It was uh, Jerusalem was not. Caesarea was a modern city named after Caesar, as you can tell, and it was it was the place to be. So they arrived. It was a port city. So they arrived there, and it says, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. There's a little bit in that last part of that sentence. It might be worth unpacking a little bit. Uh, who is Philip, and what's the, what's the seven, and what's the significance that 
um, his daughters were recognized prophets. You got, you got any, on any of those like ill little tidbits there, anything you want to toss out as a, a point of interest? Yeah, Philip, uh, the evangelist, one of the seven that were, um, that were uh, commissioned to take, to take care of the widows in the early church back in Acts chapter 6. And, uh, and so he's one of, one of that crew. That obviously wasn't the whole of his, his role there, uh, because then when the church experiences persecution and the, the church uh, basically spreads out from uh, Jerusalem when persecution breaks out, uh, the next time we see Philip is in Acts chapter 8, if I remember correctly, Acts 8, where he is uh, evangelizing uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And, uh, and so that's kind of where Philip, uh, and then he becomes known basically as Philip the evangelist. And he apparently has these, uh, these daughters, um, who, uh, who were given to prophesy, who were kind of carrying on dad's legacy in some ways, it sounds like. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty neat family. Sometimes we, we tend to think about, I feel like in ministry, when we have a job to be done a mission to be done or something like a food pantry to be taken care of. Um, who, who can we get that be really good for that task? And that's super important. But when they chose Philip and, and some of the others and Stephen that, that famously, and, and so they were, they were people that the Bible says were filled with the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. They were, they were people who were witnessing for Jesus Christ. Philip's known as the evangelist, interesting group of people to run a food pantry. That that doesn't make the, I'm not saying anything bad about evangelists or food pantries. In that, it's just I don't know that we th- we think that way in the modern church enough to to say let's find people who are chasing after God completely, and the fruit of their life is going to show well beyond this appointment or this task or this committee or this ministry that they're running, and in his case, it shows up through his daughters as well, who were active prophets that recognized people who prophesied. But there were other prophets, it says in verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, that is in Caesarea, a prophet, another prophet named Agabus, came down from Judea. Coming over to us, Agabus took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and that's weird, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. All right, so if Paul didn't know what was coming at him, at least this guy, who was a recognized prophet, says, here's what's going to happen to you. If you go into Jerusalem, it's not going to go well, and symbolically, we're going to take your belt and tie you up, and you're going to be in shackles. You're going to be a prisoner. And so you need to think about it, right? What what you want to do there. And so it goes on in verse 12. When we heard this, we, Luke's writing, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of of the Lord Jesus. There you have it. I mean, Paul Paul didn't want to shy away 
from what was in front of him because this recognized prophet said, it's going to go badly. He knew he had to go anyway. What, from, what's, what's like, what do you learn from that, that, that perspective of Paul in that case? What, what do you see in, uh, for, for, for your own life and for, for mine, yeah. <laughs> for everybody's? Yeah, I think too often we look at Paul and, and we see him as unique. Um, and, and while there's, there's uniqueness in some ways to Paul's legacy, uh, from a standpoint of his relationship with Christ and his commitment to Christ, it, it, there isn't real uniqueness there. This should be, that is the byproduct of ultimately abiding in Christ. This is the heart that is conditioned by, by the Holy Spirit for those who abide in Christ. This willingness uh, to, to go and, you know, kind of lay the chips where they, where they may and, and, uh, and get on about the business of following Christ, no matter where that leads, but potentially even uh, to one's death. And so we see Paul completely satisfied in Christ, his identity wrapped in Jesus Christ, and ultimately he's willing to die for the sake of the gospel. So wherever that leads, wherever he goes, whatever he is going to endure, suffer, whatever the result, even of the ministry itself, whether he's got you know an entire city uh, seemingly coming to Jesus Christ through his ministry, or there's two or three people that come to Christ through his ministry, or he's in a town and they drag him outside the town and try to stone him to death, whatever it might be, there's just this constant, persistent faithfulness that we see reflected in Paul's life. And so as I look at Paul, you know, one of the things that his life teaches me persistently, just kind of presses into me, is am I being persistently faithful? which again is a byproduct of this abiding in Christ. So am I truly abiding in Christ and am, and is my life uh, a revelation of that abiding? Am I, am I seeing the fruit of that abiding being revealed in this kind of persistent faithfulness? Yeah, I look at his life with, I'm going to have to say some level of admiration that, that I don't apply to my own life as, as maybe as much as I should. Of course, he's not unique. I mean, there are, there are many others who are persecuted for the faith, even in this day, and martyred for the faith, even in this day. That's not my experience. I, you know, when I, when I hang around pastors, I find that pastors, and I include myself in the, in the, the mess, sort of, are qu- quite often our number one thing is, do the people like me? And meaning my congregation, do they like me? And then maybe the second one is, are the people listening to me? And one of the normal things I, I hear myself saying from time to time and, and pa- other pastors saying uh, from time to time would be, you know, if they would only listen to me, the church could get fixed. This church would be a better church. This church would, if they, if they would start doing it right, meaning what I'm suggesting then boy, we'd be a really, we really great church. And after a while, frustration sets in, another opportunity arises, and uh, pack the bags and call the U-Haul, and and off we go. That's that's different than going into the city and being dragged out uh, on the edge of the street and stoned, and walking into something where you, the prophet says, you're going to be, be uh, shackled, and 
thinking you maybe you're even going to die. I mean, it, there's a big gap between the first scenario I just laid out and Paul's scenario and, and the scenario of many others. What's missing in that? I mean, I don't know if that's been your experience. What's missing in that for us in our approach to ministry in the modern Western uh, affluent world? I think part of it is we lack contentment uh, in Christ. There's a a general issue, I think, with that, that our contentment oftentimes is not born of our relationship with Jesus Christ, but our contentment is too often born of, I think, cultural visions of success and what success means uh, in the West and a drive ultimately to to achieve. Um, and, and some of that, too, is born of our view of legacy. And I think, sadly, there, there's a lot of pastors, and obviously this goes way beyond uh, pastoral vocation, but there's, there's a lot of folks out there who really want to be remembered, ultimately, uh, in this life. When they depart this life, they, they want their name to be inscribed somewhere. Paul doesn't care about that. You know, Paul leaves this rich legacy behind, but it's a legacy that points to Jesus Christ. And Paul, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, wouldn't, you know, I I doubt Paul recognized at at the time that we'd be, you know, reading these scriptures 2,000 years later. Uh, And even for Paul, if he did realize that, that he's, you know, that his, these words would be read 2,000 years later, his only concern would have been that they were read for the sake of Christ, not, not ultimately as a remembrance to him, if that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he has no concern ultimately about making his name great. Uh, he has no concern about ultimately inscribing his name upon the annals of history. He has no concern about leaving, you know, the legacy of the Apostle Paul. All he cares about is Jesus Christ, and, it, and, and he is content in Christ, and so whatever may be is what will be. I agree, but I do recognize there's a large gap between Paul and me, or Paul and mine, that is, my colleagues, and, and by and large, because yeah, uh, maybe maybe it's what you're describing from this success culture, and so much so forth that that we're part of. But it's um, I, I don't really hear when, when people come together or conference reports are required or whatever else that you know what's what's talked about is you know is my church growing and are there more people and and uh, those kind of things. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, the Book of Acts is all about the growth of the church, and we're always seeing the numbers of people who are coming to Christ and that's a I'm not I'm not disparaging that at all uh, but but we're never asked at a a meeting of pastors or in a conference report to relay what what levels of persecution have you been under and have any of your family members or prisoners been martyred for the faith I mean I'm not be, I'm not trying to be facetious here I'm just saying that it just seems like a large gap so we yeah. read this historically but applying it to my real world, it's kind of like, can I put up with the annoyances in sure. my current and I, church? And I think like, you know, 
in the, from the Western standpoint, you know, we measure our, our metrics are not the metrics of, of the book of acts. And so, yes, while numbers are recorded, one of the things that you don't see is when Paul gets done at Mars Hill and like two people receive Christ, nobody looked at Paul and said, well, that was an abject failure. Right. You know, it's just celebrated that two people receive Jesus or three people or whatever it was. And so the ministry itself wasn't validated by the numbers of people coming to Christ. The, the ministry itself ultimately finds its validation in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so whether, again, that, that leads to 5,000 people uh, being saved or it leads to two people receiving Christ or no people receiving Christ, it's this constant willingness to uh, put, in essence, your hopes and dreams aside and allow the Spirit to lead and to guide. Um, and I think that's where, again, we get somewhat into into problems is when we start judging the ministry and, and not to say, cause we want people to know Jesus Christ. And so we need to look, have, have people come to receive Jesus Christ. If people aren't receiving Jesus Christ, do, is there something that we need to change in what we're doing? And so it's not to diminish the numbers. It's just that when the numbers themselves become the ultimate thing, rather than making much of Jesus. And I think that's where sometimes we, we have a tendency uh, to struggle because we think validation uh, of ministry, of, of faithfulness to Christ, rests in numbers rather than in being faithful. And, uh, and, and I know there's, there's times where I've had conversations with pastors. That, in fact, there's a pastor I worked with for a while. One time he asked me straight up, he said, what am I doing wrong? Because while the church we were at was actually experiencing some growth, we weren't experiencing the growth of the mega church less than a mile away. Mm -hmm. Right. And reality is, I'm like, you're probably not necessarily doing anything wrong, you know? I mean, are you being faithful to Christ? Are you being faithful to your vocational call? Are you being faithful to the gifts that, that he's given? If the answer is yes, even in all our areas of inadequacy, then we should be able to, to rest at night and recognize that reality is, is that in, you know, uh, if you've got a more dynamic speaker down the street, it doesn't mean that you're not necessarily vocationally gifted for pastoral ministry. It also doesn't mean that your church is necessarily going to grow as quickly as the dude who's some, you know, dynamic, charismatic speaker down and the street. And I would say on the flip side, lack of growth is not an indication that you're being faithful. Because right. I hear people sometimes say that, you know, like, well, one of the people with the, the great light show and smoke, smoke and everything, that's the one who's growing. We must be doing something right because we're not growing. I don't think faithfulness is measured like that. That's right. It's measured in different ways. Well, we're going to see that here in, the, in this story, we're going to skip a bunch of verses because Paul went through some purification stuff with some other people who were there with him. And the result of all of that is they were accusing him of defiling the temple by bringing Greeks into the, into the place where only the Jews were allowed in the temple. Let's skip down to verse 30 and see the result, the grand result of all of this, his entry into Jerusalem. And it says in verse 30 of chapter 21, the whole city, that is the whole city of Jerusalem was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple 
and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. So it wasn't like they were threatening. They were actively trying to kill him in that moment. So what he had said earlier about, I'll go there even face death, he might have in his mind thought, okay, here it is. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now this Roman commander, he doesn't really care about the Jewish squabbles, but he does want peace in the city where he's in charge. It says in verse 32, he, that is the commander, at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. (laughs) So they were just wailing away on Paul and they stopped because somebody more powerful, that is a Roman commander and some officers and some soldiers are marching their way and they thought we better back off here because, and that's the only thing that spared Paul's life, I would assume, in that moment. Let's wrap it up in verse 33 to 36 of Acts 21. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. There's that prophetic word. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Now, there's a deal. Let's arrest the guy that's getting beaten without even knowing what his name is or what he's done. It was a different sense of justice back in the, in the day in the Roman Empire, wasn't it? Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. They couldn't even agree on what Paul had done wrong. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And that's, you kind of think of like a, a champion being carried on the shoulders after the big victory. And so there's Paul, the, the prisoner, being lifted up above the crowd. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. So that's Paul's introduction back into Jerusalem. He'd been there a number of times. But his introduction back into Jerusalem for the last time, by the way. And the response that he received from the people, the Roman authorities and the Jewish worshipers, the Jewish people, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It was not a happy, a happy time. So I want to step outside of Paul for a minute because we saw earlier that James was there and we kind of skipped that part. James was there, who was one of the the lead, he was the leader, probably, of the church in Jerusalem at that point. This would be James, the guy that wrote the book of James. Um, so they're there, and um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and, and the, other, the other elders and leaders were there. I don't know who all was there, but they're watching this. And you know they're, they're seeing this. Do you, th- you think like they thought, this is it? This, this could be like the end of our, of our efforts? I mean... Jesus, we watched him be treated the same way, and now they're treating our key evangelists the same way, and we're just not going to be able to stop the persecution. Or do they think, nope, no, no big deal. You know, if this happens to Paul, the ministry cannot be stopped. Do you have any sense, like, from these early Jewish leaders, whether, whether it was Peter or whoever all was there, and we know James, what might be stirring among the faithful? Yeah, I don't know. I think they were 
probably more along the lines of like persecution is life. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of mm. what they had come to know and come uh, to expect, uh, both from Jewish re- from the side of the Jewish religious leaders and then also from the side of the Romans, and especially in Jerusalem because the two were tied so intimately uh, together. Where the the Romans, even uh, by this point, um, would put if a Gentile had entered into the inter sanctum of, uh, of the temple itself, they had worked out a, the Jew, the Jewish religious leaders had worked out a deal with the Romans that they would just be put to death. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're mm-hmm. working in concert for one another in, in order really to keep the peace uh, within Jerusalem. But the Christians at the time were, were the odd uh, men and women out. And so all they had begun to know uh, really is persecution from that immediate persecution when Stephen was stoned while Paul was there uh, encouraging uh, it uh, to now where, yeah, I have to imagine as they're, they're looking at Paul, they're also thinking, you know, we're, we're next. Yeah, I wonder if Paul was within eyeshot of where he had watched other early Christians be put to death yeah. and was encouraging it. Right, and here right. he is back at the same spots in Jerusalem, outside the temple, facing the same thing himself. Yeah, and it's interesting because you think about, you know, obviously with what happened at, with Stephen and, and Paul there giving approval, and and uh, you know, Paul being one who was at one point would have been welcomed and embraced in Jerusalem, and now is this functional outcast, deserving of death in their mind. They said their final words were, get rid of him. We're going to pick up the story next time a little more deeply as more people in the crowd get involved, and then the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious authorities, get involved and develop this plot to kill Paul right in Jerusalem. They're, they're done with him. They're done with his influence around the world and the poisoning of the Jewish faith as they see it, and, and they want to get rid of him. So we'll explore that more deeply next time as we plunge into Acts, the rest of Acts chapter 22, latter part in Acts chapter 23, and take, take a look at some of this story together. Until then, if you would like to jump in deeper, we encourage you to go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, find the app, click on the Be On Mission link in either one of those, and that will take you to more elements of this year-long study. So we would love for you to do that. If you want to stay up to date with these Be On Mission podcasts, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a good discussion today, and we look forward to more of it next week. May God bless. Mm-hmm.